This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey there, thanks for joining me again on the Worth Your Time podcast today. My guest is Gabriella Hoffman. She's a bit of a digital media dynamo out in the DC area and someone I've always been impressed with. I'm excited to have on the show again another first-generation American too. Gabby's parents actually fled Lithuania for the States, and she grew up in Southern California. After getting interested in politics, she ended up in DC where she remains, running her own digital media consulting business hosting her podcast, District of Conservation, and writing for The Resurgent. She also just launched a new YouTube series on conservation as well. She loves hunting, fishing, and is a part of a movement of leading women who are making these male-dominated hobbies popular with the ladies, which is pretty cool. You will definitely learn something new today if you are not in that world yourself, which I'm totally not. So it was really interesting to hear why Gabby loves those things so much and why she's dedicating so much of her life to that conversation and just cultivating that area for women right now. Enjoy this conversation with Gabriella Hoffman. Well, I'm welcoming to the podcast today, Gabriella Hoffman. Gabriella, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. I'm excited to be on Worth Your Time. I've enjoyed listening and I'm honored to talk to you. Well, I'm excited to talk to you because you are one of those people that I just feel like is doing something new every day, which I love because you have your hand in a million different things, but kind of like have your finger on the pulse of, of the next big thing all the time. Um, a Jill of all trades, if you will. So, um, I, you know, before we jump into all of that, could you just give us a little bit of background on who you are, where you live, um, what you're doing right now, um, with your professional life. And then I have a bunch of questions about all that stuff. Happily, and that's a, a good thing to, to begin with. So I won't bore listeners with my full resume or every detail, but I'll, I'll simplify it as best as possible because it's a, a lot to absorb, but I, I try to make it simple, of course. But I'm a first-generation American, which you don't really hear that much these days, um, especially in our political arena and our political sector um, on the center-right. I am a daughter of Lithuanian immigrants who came here as political refugees in 1986. So I wear that first generation label with a badge of honor. I was actually even the first person in my immediate family born in the United States uh, when I was. And so that's a pretty cool thing to have as well. And growing up as a child of individuals who faced certain experiences and a lot of persecution for being a certain faith, a certain ethnicity, uh, just wanting to desire freedom has really shaped my worldview, not only in my political work, but also in my freelancing and consulting work, and also my work in writing, and I would say to an extent journalism too. A lot of the truth uh, that was supposed to be discussed in their ancestral homeland largely got obfuscated or hidden. Uh, we often hear, especially now with socialism being kind of the new hip thing among people in our generation, uh, you, you hear a lot of truth obfuscated and uh, downplayed about that system. And so I was always curious about my family history, and I still ask my parents to this day uh, about our relatives, uh, grandparents, anyone beyond that. And I still lean on them for, for stories, even though I'm older and I'm doing my own kind of thing. Um, but it's just such a unique background to come from, and I'm lucky to have that perspective and to grow up with parents who sacrificed everything to come to this country and really provide for a better life for me and my sister. And we learned a lot from them, especially on how to be entrepreneurial, self-sufficient, uh, individual-minded, and it's it's something I like to talk about and and try to incorporate into my work whether it is writing, consulting, things of that sort, and telling people my family's story as best as I can, because I know a lot of people are interested in learning about that, especially with a lot of the parallels that can be made to this day. So 
first generation American. Um, love and that history. Yeah. I was yeah. just going to say, how old were your parents when they came over to America? They were probably in their thirties when they did. I and think then my- you, you were born soon after that. Yeah. Give or take. Yeah. They were, yeah, I was born, I think six years, within five years of them coming here. So I'm 91. They came in 80s. Yeah. So within five years of them arriving, I came. And, and, and what was it, you know, they had obviously lived there their whole lives. So what was it that finally gave them the courage or whatever it was that they needed to make that leap to a totally different life? Well, the eminent collapse of the physical collapse of the Soviet Union was on the horizon. My parents told me uh, it was pretty eminent and they had some spur of the moment opportunity to flee because you really didn't have expressed permission to leave the Soviet Union unless you got it. Uh, when it was like Stalin era time, there was no way you could leave. And it's not to say that the system was good in allowing them to leave and Glasnost and Perestroika when you had uh, Gorbachev in charge, but they, they knew that it was inevitable that the physical collapse was coming. So I guess they were being more generous with them trying to leave and and the rest of my extended family too. It wasn't just my parents. My um, dad's parents also came with them. Uh, My aunt and some other, I think, extended family members. And my my, uh, dad's other brother and his wife actually came to the country a few years before and settled in California, which is why my family ended up in Southern California and why I was born and raised there. Uh, Because when uh, people were choosing to immigrate, when they, if they had family members here, that's usually how uh, political refugees were allowed into the country. You had to go where your brothers or parents or immediate family members were residing. So my parents had a choice between like Montreal, Canada, Boston, Massachusetts, and Chicago. And they chose Southern California, um, through Los Angeles, but made their way a little South to Orange County, which I'm thankful that they did because I appreciated growing up, uh, behind the orange curtain and a little bit away from Los Angeles. Yeah. And it's like, Southern California is, is one of the most beautiful places in the country. So, so, so that's another bonus there. So you grew up in Southern California. Somehow you ended up all the way over here on the East coast in Washington, DC, working in politics. Give us the short story on how you made that leap. Yeah. So in college, I studied political science at UC San Diego. And when I was applying to colleges, I knew I was going to be in California, but I just tried on a whim to apply to like Ivy League schools, Georgetown and other elite schools halfway across the country. Didn't succeed there despite having a good GPA, got a little disheartened, but I was really actually happy with my choice in the long run. Uh, And I knew that I could revisit that option to travel or move to the East Coast down the road. And when I got more politically involved in college, I wrote for the conservative paper, which was the conservative review. And then that segued into being active on campus. I brought David Horowitz to campus, a former communist, and I brought him during the one of the most tense-filled weeks on any college campus, especially um, California public schools, which is like uh, weeks for on the uh, Israeli-Arab conflict. Mm. And I wanted to bring a pro-Israel speaker, and that made like national news. That event uh, because the girl said she was for for it or essentially for a second Holocaust. Uh, You guys can actually YouTube the video, anyone listening, um, you type in for it, girl, UCSD, and her clip comes up. Yeah, I'll link that. I'll link that on the show notes for anyone listening. Yeah, nine years later. And when I hosted that event, I put myself in a lot of, not an uncomfortable position, but I had some stakes out for me Uh, People were not happy that I did that. I wasn't doing it to rock the boat. I really genuinely wanted to bring in a different voice. And I know David Horowitz is kind of controversial now. I haven't really followed his work in the last few years. But in college, like he was a pretty leading figure for uh, college campuses for conservatives to bring. And he was, I I felt at the time, an appropriate choice to bring in and dissect um, that week and his experience and just what goes on and discussing kind of... uh, how campus anti-Semitism is a problem. And uh, he went on Sean Hannity's show to, to discuss that. And it was, it just kind of like opened a lot of doors for me because everyone knew I was organizing it. Uh, but there were a lot of pitfalls to it too. Like I had incurred a debt, which you never want to do as a college student when you right. bring in a speaker. Mm-hmm. But within a year of like trying to recover that debt, some nice donor was able to help uh, offset the costs, uh, a debt that I owed my parents, which was nice. Uh, I had a lot of people who I thought were my supposed friends kind of betray me or like, uh, 
kind of tossed me down the road. They, I remember like uh, some of the college Republicans were like, well, we don't really endorse these views or not endorse them. And I kind of felt like some people sidelined me. And that's natural with anything. I have no ill will towards those people now. But at the time, it was kind of discouraging that even so-called allies kind of throw you, threw you under the bus. It really didn't come to vouch for you. So uh, trial by fire is something I've been used to for almost a decade now, having worked in politics. Yeah, it sounds and, like maybe you kind of thrive on that a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad I experienced that really early. And you have to have difficult challenges. And I did in college um, with that. But I, I thankfully learned how to navigate that and, and other hurdles, too, across my uh, political career and in my um, writing career as well. Uh, but yeah, you, you do have to go through some adversity when you're trying to reach your final destination, whether you're starting out as a political activist and then kind of finding your way and, and taking shape in different forms. And some people still refer to me as a political activist, which I don't like being called that because I, I run my own business now and I'm a consultant and I'm vocal on some issues, not as much as I used to be like three years ago compared to that time frame. But I tell people like, I advocate for stuff, but I'm not an activist. Like I'm a consultant and a media strategist. And I understand that's kind of how some people view you. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting having to make that transition from being a very outspoken activist to kind of a more uh, mature and refined kind of private sector type person. Who what year have- was that that you brought David Horowitz to campus? Well, that was 2010. Yeah. That was, okay. That's- Ago. Yeah, I yeah. was going to say, because e- it, even now the environment is almost really completely changed so, because even though campus was, you know, uh, volatile then, now, oh my gosh, like you probably would have even gotten much more negative shit. feedback from people. Oh, you know, it was, it was a, a little nerve wracking to endure that kind of attention, but it was good attention because it actually helped foment a conversation at UC San Diego and ultimately other UC campuses about the problem of campus anti-Semitism. I can't claim credit for fully achieving that or fully uh, delivering on that, but I would like to think that that event helped inspire some people to take actions on their own and and defeat that because it is a problem. Um, and then from there, I, I was kind of catapulted into a radio career concurrently with my studies. I worked for a former KCBQ 1170 AM host named Rick Amato. And I think he has a TV program now, but I helped him kind of brand himself. I brought in like young conservative guests. We booked on some conservative luminary columnists like Michelle Malkin and Essie Cup. And I'm really glad I was able to help arrange that. That was a really cool experience. I got to go all over San Diego uh, with the host to certain events. We did a San Diego Bay cruise. We went to a Harley Davidson shop. Uh, tea party rally. We went to all these different events, and um, I did that for for uh, gratis. I wasn't paid for that experience. And in college, I did a lot of paid and unpaid internships, which is why I feel like I've worked forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like you were really just drawn to the media side of yes. things right off the bat, which is now yeah. you know what you're doing. You have your own company, which I think is really admirable. You you did work for the Leadership Institute prior to this, but then you, at a very young age, took this leap to open up your own consulting uh, business. So tell me about how you decided to do that and then what your sure. experience has been since. And then I have a few more questions about you know, sure. the various other things that you've piled on top of that. Yeah. Well, I always kind of had it in me. I think like most impressionable young conservatives, as you know, you've worked in the industry long enough and I've looked to you for many things across the years. You've kind of mentored me and shaped me in a a few things. And I'm I'm grateful that you've been able to influence me. And Beverly Hallberg has been really good. I've leaned on her. She's the best. Yeah, she's awesome. And I have to, I told her, I said, like, if I ever like write a book or do something big, I will have to like contract you at some point. Yes. Hire you to like polish me a little bit. Well, you know, I did. I did with her. So yeah, you did as well for your book efforts. Yeah, and and for me, like I said, I I came from a entrepreneurial family. My dad runs his own business. My mother worked in corporate America for several decades, and I've always had this kind of inner desire. But kind of segueing back, what I was saying about how impressionable young conservatives kind of have this desire to be. Uh, Fox News contributors, or I think I I had an idea to be like a syndicated columnist or some like TV contributor. And it could still be a possibility down the road. I'm not uh, completely tossing that option aside. But I realize it's impractical to just make that your goal because syndication as a 
medium is dying along with newspapers. That's what most of us have realized. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really make it my goal to go on TV because I've had a lot of people ask me, why haven't you gone on TV yet? Why haven't you done this? I've done a lot of print and uh, digital media, news media interviews. So I compensate with that. But I've told people uh, that like when, if that opportunity were to come, I would totally take it, but I'm not in my line of work just to go on TV. I think there's a distinction people have to make when they're want contemplating a career in media because there are so many different avenues to be in the media per se. Whether you're consulting, you're you're kind of a face of a platform or a face of a company or a publication or a cause. And for me, I've felt very comfortable so far being kind of behind the scenes, but also a little bit out front in in the scenes um, when I'm doing my writing or commentating there. But uh, I learned that um, I have to be patient with certain things. And I reworked some of my strategy and my goals. And I realized like, maybe I'm not ready to do TV, maybe down the road, I can do TV, and not be flung into it. Because a lot of people amass, um, if they rise too quickly, uh, they kind of amass burnout, they get a little uh, phased out by politics, and they do it for some time. And then they have this rash change of opinion and this but uh, I'm glad I wasn't flung into that really early. So I, I've worked almost a decade into my media career. So if that opportunity were to arise, I will happily take it. But I'm glad I never rushed into it or I went viral, so to speak, as some <laughs> up-and-coming young conservatives or Republican commentators do now, where they're not really groomed properly to handle scrutiny, to handle challenges. They're not, they don't have enough real-world experience. And I remember being younger, and I bet you do too, when you're in fresh out of high school or in your early 20s, uh, that a lot of people warn you saying like, don't go into this with for the wrong reasons. Wait until you've reached like your late 20s or your early 30s to give serious thought to going on TV or radio or some other popular platform. Yeah, yeah. You've probably seen me talk about uh, my experience doing TV yes. in my 20s when I first came to DC. And I was just unexpectedly thrust into it. Um, not, I didn't have any idea that I was going to have that kind of opportunity. And, um, you know, I didn't want to say no. So I said yes, but I wasn't prepared. I really didn't know what I was talking about. And I was scared to death. And I ended up, you know, kind of running away from it, even though I could have done it more, which, you know, mm -hmm. it, it was probably good that I ran away. I didn't need to be on TV. But at the same time, then I kind of like put that away and didn't open it back up again for many years. So there's definitely a strategy and a really, I think, thoughtful process that should go into that. So I think you're probably smart in the approach that you took, but you, um, your, what is does your company have a name or is it just kind of your first and last name? It's still kind of like a, what a sole proprietorship. Okay. Um, until I can, cause I'm not exactly at the, and I don't have to discuss what my earnings are. And I, I don't publicly share that except for friends, but I'm not yet at the point where I feel the need to incorporate it. I file taxes. I do everything per, uh, legally, nothing wrong there. Um, but it's a sole proprietorship. So I just have people, I thought I create contracts and they're legally binding and, uh, client prospective clients get to work with me, agree to agree, uh, mutually agreeable terms. And that's kind of how I operate. Um, but I've been doing that now for about three years. And I think this summer will be starting into the fourth, uh, fourth year of me doing that. So I've been doing it for a while. It's still kind of fresh, but I feel like I've gotten out of that, uh, period of where it's like, you feel uncertain about stability having good clients, because I will tell anyone who has an interest in going on their own, it's not easy. I think Beverly can attest to that. And many others who lay the groundwork for their own businesses don't have the immediate outcome they want of having six figures or millions of dollars coming in routinely from clients. Uh, you don't always work with the best clients. You sometimes work with people who make you miserable or unhappy. Or have uh, unrealistic expectations, yes. like if we're talking about social media specifically. Yes. Yeah, they, they want a certain numerical result, um, not so much organic growth or percentage growth uh, for that. But, but yeah, sometimes you run into people who don't want to pay you. Uh, they want to Con they want you to do everything for them in lieu of them actually taking ownership in their brand because you know very well know this having managed lots of very prominent social media digital properties and accounts but uh when i do both traditional and digital media type projects i tell people there's an expectation you're going to have to do some of a lot of the branding yourself because i can't go 
and replicate your efforts. I can help build your brand, help define your image, and then you have to be willing to share it with people. And if you are not comfortable doing that, it's going to be hard to work with you. So it's been it's been challenging sometimes to find people who can be proactive in working with you in a client consultant relationship and then find finding the people who are higher dollar who understand uh, payment for work output, especially yeah. if your your network, um, getting them placed in very prominent outlets, whether it's a print publication or online publication, um, TV, radio, things of that sort. So I've I've had clients placed on various different outlets. I've been able to get people on TV, uh, print, radio, things of that sort. So I've been able to successfully place people, not as consistently as I'd like. TV is really hard to place people on, especially with everyone wanting to respond to what's happening in the White House or uh, Congress. So sometimes it gets very saturated, but I always tell people that I can assure you, you will get more bang for your buck if you hire me. We'll get you placed on some cool conservative talk radio. I'll get you op-eds in some leading publications. And a lot of people see worth in that. So that's pretty cool too. And you've built a lot of those, obviously, connections. So you're doing pitching, you're doing some PR stuff. And mm-hmm. it's been over your time in D.C., I assume, uh, yeah. majorly D.C., that you've been yeah. able to build connections with like producers and people like that. I know with that kind of stuff, it really is that connection game and who you know, because otherwise you're not getting in there. Yeah, it, it really is. And as you know, having you, since you spent about 10 years here, about a decade or so plus, it, uh, I feel like all that networking did pay off kind mm-hmm. of in, in it. Subconsciously, I was like, you know, I, I understand there's a purpose to doing this, to, to meeting all these people, even if some of the connections weren't that worthwhile, maybe down the road it could prove to be fruitful. Uh, but, but with this being a networking town or networking metro area, I found it to be very conducive to my business now that I made all those connections and I'm still making connections, um, not only across politics, but also in the outdoor industry and a little bit in the military owned business community and small business community. And yeah, I was going to say, I want to talk to you about that side of your life. Um, in addition to your business where you're working with clients, you also, you have your own podcast, District of Conservation. Yeah. You, um, you also write and work with The Resurgent, uh, which is theresurgent.com, uh, Eric Erickson's, uh, it's not a publication, it's just online publication, but, um, and then you, I, you've done some work with the NRA, isn't that right? Not formally. Or you've interviewed, uh, done interviews or something with them? Yeah, I've done interviews with them. Uh, they sometimes, some of their, I mean, sometimes I'll work with their PR department for media placement. Mm, okay. uh, so they were the ones who helped me to do the Time Magazine cover. And I was able to rope in a few friends for that too. So sometimes uh, a PR contact I have there will say, hey, can you like do this because we feel that it's better for members to do this. And I said, sure, I'll do this. And I've been able to talk to not hostile press, but uh, mainstream press. And, and those opportunities have been really good. And about I've being a that. member of the NRA. Yeah. Well, even beyond that, about being a gun owner, a believer of the Second Amendment, um, the importance of educating people, being fact-based, um, explaining the lifestyle to people more. So that's what I do uh, for that. But I've also actually written most recently in the last year for several outdoor publications. I've been published repeatedly in Sporting Classics, which is one of the top uh, sporting hunting fishing magazines. And I was just about a month or two ago published for the first time ever in both field and stream and outdoor life, which are Ooh. pretty luminary publications. Yeah, I think yeah. I think even those of us who are not outdoorsy <laughs> know yeah. what those are. Well, let yeah. me ask you this, um, just because I think I think I have a variety of listeners, um, some conservative, some not political. Um, And and so I I want I'd love to ask you about being a member of the NRA, because obviously they get a bad rap sometimes. Um, And I'm sure if you were to wear a bumper sticker on your car or your T-shirt that said you were a supporter, you might get some dirty looks. So what does it mean to you? Why? Why do you want to be a member of the NRA? And what what are maybe some misconceptions that people have about the organization? Sure. Well, living in D.C., I don't put any bumper sticker regardless of what it is. <laughs> Probably a good idea. <laughs> just because I know uh, people in this town don't respond to difference of opinion. I mean, I'm in Northern Virginia, so it's a little less hostile, but I just don't want my car to get smashed or something. So <laughs> I, I refrain from anything, even something as simple as like, whatever, a catchy slogan, not right. political. So, And it's hard to remove that off your car, too. 
But in terms of being an NRA member, obviously no organization is perfect, and I won't be the first person to say that. But I found that compared to many others out there, the NRA is perhaps one of the few that is able to represent gun owners well. Again, it hasn't been perfect. I don't agree with everything they do. I don't think any member does. Uh, But I find value in it because I know that they are working to defend the Second Amendment for the most part in Congress and in state capitals. And people misunderstand what exactly is the NRA. They think they sell guns. They don't. They're, They're not a trade association. Actually, the trade association that does specifically deal with firearms manufacturers, and it's actually a really good group. I I always reference them, and I'm actually a media member of theirs. It's the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Mm -hmm. So people are quick to conflate those two organizations. And even with the latter, NSSF, being in the so-called trade, in the trades there, uh, working with manufacturers, I think a lot of the times uh, organizations like those get maligned and uh, mixed in with criminal gun activity or criminal gun behavior. Uh, and another misconception I hope your viewers will uh, take heart to is that um, most NRA members, I would say the majority, if 99%, uh, I don't know anyone who, who believes that uh, criminals or those who have violent tendencies should have access to firearms. And I don't know anyone who doesn't mourn the any tragedy that happens. Like It makes me upset whenever another mass shooting happens. And that's because I'm a human and I think most other NRA members are human too. And you, you feel like, Oh my gosh, these people are defenseless. I wish someone like me or someone who was equipped to help repel a certain thing, uh, was there to have, have stopped that type of tragic event. And, and people, and I think people, they have this media caricature that any gun owner, whether they're NRA members or not, uh, agrees with what a criminal does or what a mass shooter does. And that's patently false. Um, And I know that issue does divide people. And I tell people, even friends of mine who don't support the NRA are kind of ambivalent on gun rights. I say uh, just in general about gun ownership, like don't read everything very seriously that comes out of most sources because it comes from a place of ignorance and kind of like when people talk about wanting to regulate technology or social media platforms, we want the same courtesy when it comes to firearms terminology and nomenclature Um, I think any industry which often gets subjugated to talks of regulation, uh, people ask for that courtesy and that consideration. And I think people have to read very carefully uh, with what something is, whether it's a universal background check and what entails that. Um, Existing law states that you have to submit a background check already uh, whenever you purchase a firearm, even in private uh, transactions as well. And a universal background check wouldn't do much to ameliorate or reduce the likelihood of a crime. That's what studies have shown. Um, So a lot of people will put statistics out saying that people support this universally. It's like 90% agreement, but their methodology is not very accurate. And just with with anything like that or uh, like uh, what an assault rifle is, a lot of people conflate a semi-automatic Armalite rifle AR-15 uh, sporting rifle as something that is an assault weapon, which is uh, not semi-automatic in nature. And if with each pull of the trigger, um, you get spurious bullets coming out with an automatic weapon versus a semi-automatic where you get a a pull of the trigger leads to one bullet coming out. Yeah, so- I think I think what you're saying is true that there is major. Um, miscommunication miscommunication, no clarity whatsoever when it comes to guns um we know even when we hear the politicians talking about it i I mean we've even seen reputable news sources uh reporting things that if you are an actual gun owner that knows anything about guns doesn't actually make sense now i am not that person so i could never clear that up for someone (laughs) but i think you know i totally understand concerns that people have with the nra sometimes but at the same time i think like let's be honest in the conversation if we're going to have the conversation so mm-hmm. that that totally makes sense now for you what has made you interested in hunting in guns in that kind of um part of your life this conservation side of your life what what made you so interested in that yeah well i in growing up in southern california which is considered one of the most outdoorsy states i think Year after year, California gets labeled the most uh, outdoorsy state in the union, which is a pretty appropriate title because it's surrounded by the ocean, mountains, river streams, desert, many different types of scenarios where you can go outside. 
And I had the privilege of being able to go to the Pacific Ocean. I was maybe 10 to 15 minutes driving distance from Laguna Beach. I grew up in southern Orange County, so I got to enjoy beautiful beaches and got to go fishing with my dad because he just felt that I would be suitable to go fishing with because he had no sons, but he wanted, (laughs) he, he thought, he thought that was a way for us to do father daughter bonding. And whenever I could, if I wasn't in school, um, even with early, uh, elementary school type stuff, because you had, it was mandatory to go to school. I never missed any school to go fishing or anything of that sort. (laughs) But on the weekends and in the summertime, I remember, especially when I was turning eight and then became more seriously involved with fishing, by the time I reached 12, and statistics actually show that if kids go fishing by the age of 12, uh, they're they're known to be hooked for life, no pun intended. Wow. <laughs> so, so there's um, a really cool resource there, and you can find out statistics like that at takemefishing.org. It's a really good resource. They love having Aww. moms. I like the name of the website. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. And so fishing was kind of natural for me really early on, and i I think the first time I picked up a gun was when I was 19 in California and I went to the mountains and I shot some targets with friends in one of the national forests. I don't think it was illegal. (laughs) I'm not sure exactly, but uh, we didn't harm anyone. It was just uh, targets in the background and it was pretty safe. And I was with experienced uh, shooters there. So I was able to do that for the first time. It was kind of a nerve wracking experience because I wasn't familiar with a ricochet sound and a large recoil sound. And uh, for hunting, I didn't really get to realize that until I moved out here to Virginia, just because in California, uh, firearms and hunting are not really liked by much of the politicians there. So they put into place a lot of laws to restrict access. Actually, there are efforts now in California to encourage more hunters. Uh, Among conservation-related discussions, I've seen that, and that's really interesting, despite them alienating People, because you have a lot of um, radical environmentalist interests that don't dominate the state politics there. Uh, it's kind of morphed into that. Uh, it used to be a very pro-hunting type of place, although um, a new study that came out from the National Shooting Sports found that actually a lot of people purchase guns from Cal- like California is in the top five for gun purchases and excise taxes that are derived from gun purchases. So they're usually in the top five, type t- top 10, because it has such a big population, even in spite of a lot of the regulations um, there. So there is an interest in the sporting lifestyle in California, but I wasn't able to have access to it because my dad didn't do hunting. Um, and a lot of my friends never really talked about it. So when I came here, kind of a thing you do here, because this is an older part of the United States colonial state, and there's a lot of vested rich history with hunting here, and in Maryland, and kind of the nearby states. So what people do, politicians, even from both sides of the aisle, a lot of Democrats and some, uh, I'm sorry, a lot of Republicans and some Democrats actually partake in hunting trips. Uh, There's a good group called the Congressional Sportsman Foundation that encourages bipartisan active uh, involvement through those types of efforts. And so people here, regardless of politics, for the most part, will go hunting. So it's kind of normalized here. And a lot of friends tried to get me in for many years. And when I was able to go on my own for my business, I was able to realize that opportunity and pursue it more actively. So I've gone on several hunts so far. And I just like that kind of like fishing, you're able to experience the natural world. You have mentors. uh, You get to learn about your surroundings. You see wildlife. You appreciate it. You're not just out there to go killing kill something or just to have a harvest, a lot of the times you're going to come up empty handed. But what you won't come empty handed with are experiences that you get to bask in, whether it's viewing a sunrise or a sunset, um, admiring wildlife from a distance, seeing cool shrubbery, or if you're interested in like foraging, you see wild berries that are easily consumable or wild mushrooms that you can consume. Right now is actually morel hunting season. So everyone locally here is all about finding those uh, mushrooms that you can harv- uh, you can forage for and then incorporate into your uh, dinner or lunch or whatever. Yeah, but- there's actually, a, people do a lot of mushroom hunting here in Indiana too. Yeah. I've never done it myself, but my dad used to do it and then he'd like fry up the mushrooms and <laughs> at home. Um, so yeah, I, I, I totally see what you mean about yeah. that. You know, just really appreciating nature for what it is and just being in yeah. it. Like, you know, I know with fishing or hunting even, um, a lot of times you are just 
sitting there, not doing a whole lot. Um, and I, you know, I have never done that much myself, but there are so many people that truly enjoy it. And when you think about it, it's like, yeah, like we have this beautiful earth to, um, to appreciate. And so many times we're going so fast that we don't stop to do that. And those sports really give you that opportunity to, um, to do that quick question though. Um, you know, I know there's all kinds of like fishing, Mm -hmm. you'll see like a fishing tournament or something on TV. Like what makes someone a good fisherman? Is there, is it just catching it or (laughs) are there other skills? Yeah. Well, there's, that's a subjective thing because you'll ask anyone and it's, it's so much that's entailed with it. And actually something I think your listeners will like a lot, especially if about women's empowerment, uh, there are a lot of efforts to get women into fishing, specifically fly fishing. That's kind of a new hip thing for women to do. And it's done out of sincere motives and intentions. And I myself have kind of adopted fly fishing into my fishing repertoire, but Fly fishing is kind of the thing people want to master and do, especially women. And women are doing it because it's a confidence boost. It kind of shows that they can empower themselves uh, to hike a certain terrain, to reach a stream, to go fishing for a trout, an elusive trout or a bass, whatever is um, to their liking. Mm -hmm. And a lot of women are starting businesses around fly fishing. They're guides, uh, they're uh, business owners, they run apparel companies, so it's kind of spurned this, uh, spurred this, excuse me, uh, type of opportunity for women to become business owners, to empower others, to become leaders, and really promote conservation at large. Not simply just harvesting a fish to take home and, and cook, which I believe you should do both put and take and also catch and release. And there's a whole debate on uh, should you only do catch and release fishing? Can you do both put and take and catch and release? But a lot of people are uh, doing kind of a more conservation type fishing, especially women, whether it's just you go in the water, you wade in your waders, you bask in the glory of nature, hearing birds singing, chirping, uh, hearing the wild stream kind of pass through. It's it's really calming. And so a lot of women are doing that uh, to kind of get away from the heyday of social media. Um, they're also taking their kids to go fishing, uh, their, their spouses or significant others if they're not already yoked into fishing. And their girlfriends, too, uh, like a lot of women are doing like ladies trips to go fly fishing or fishing in general. And it's all about camaraderie and having fun and just deplugging just because with with any industry or any activity you do. And a lot of people in hunting and fishing also do a lot of hiking. I like hiking when I can um, going on strolls around nature or something, or just being outside with nature, you know, you know, from DC that we have a lot of people who go running. Um, there's a lot of of greenery here. You can do anything. You can go fishing, hunting, hiking, walking, uh, rock climbing, things of that sort. So there's a lot of overlap with outdoor activities, um, that a lot of hunters and anglers do too. But with fishing, um, if you're adept at fly fishing now, that's kind of what is being used as like a standard for how good of a fisherman you are. You don't have to catch trophy fish or always get fish uh there i think people judge successes differently um usually with with if you're winning a competition it's different but this is not about competing for anything if you are able to let's say hook in a fish but you miss it or you don't properly reel it in that kind of is like a lesson you can take away from that uh about that missed catch or if you are successful with reeling something in, you get a quick photo if you want to, and then you figure out how you safely release the fish back into the water uh, with limited damage done to it. And that's some people choose to do that. Actually, a good bulk of people, especially women, choose to do that. Or if you want, if you have a fish of legal size and legal creel limit um, or possession limit, then you can decide if that fish is appropriate to take or if it's too small, you put it back. But there's different ways that people look into being a successful fisherman and it's it's not only going out into the field and fishing it's also helping with uh cleaning up streams supporting like clean water initiatives getting involved with groups and hunting enthusiasts do this as well so it's really Um, kind of like a lifestyle thing yes yeah with anything like if you're into hiking there's a lot of these type of lifestyle groups or lifestyle attitudes placed on it and similar in fishing too and it's piqued a lot of people's interest like nbc did something about it um a lot of the kind of outdoor type uh publications and outlets i think like outside magazine is having an interest in it like 
all these different companies are REI, uh, Patagonia, and a few others are taking an interest in like more people fishing, and they're they're not really their typical clientele. Uh, they're usually hikers or climbers, and they're like, well, maybe we can like seize on this like female demographic of fly anglers to bring into the fold. Yeah, so even unconventional companies kind of finding ways to lure in people into buying their products, uh, getting involved, and not just like those kind of uh, not-so-consumer type uh, outdoor entities, but you have even like traditional outdoor companies like Bass Pros and Cabela's and Orvis Fly Fishing that typically appeal to people. It's large, large share of their demographic and their consumers are male, so they're finding ways, even the traditional outlets are trying to find ways to bring in more women into the fold, and I would say a lot of them are succeeding um, that way. But, but yeah, success in fishing can be judged many ways. Like if you want to have a lot of lessons that take away from it, I think. Um, yeah. Well, you are obviously one of these women who are leading the way, becoming a leader in this space with your podcast. Did you, did you consider doing a podcast theme of anything else? Or was this always the direction you wanted to go with it? I think like every other impressionable young conservative, I was contemplating a political podcast. I may even do something in the future. A friend of mine and I were thinking of ways to collaborate. Like he's a preacher down in Florida, really solid person. And we were, I was thinking about maybe possibly doing a podcast with him. I just have to see if the stars will align for that or if it's uh, meant to be to do that. But uh, I think I did have an idea to do a conservative type podcast, but it's such a saturated market. And I love that yours is not explicitly political too. It's, it's like conservative type people that are, uh, wading into mainstream topics because it's so important that we do that, that we can communicate that we're just like everyone else with these (laughs) interests. Yeah. We make different political disposition, but we're just like anyone else who likes these hobbies. Yeah, I mean, I I originally did want to have, and I still will, I wanted it to be more across the board politically, but, you know, what I'm finding is the friends that I have that are not conservative are really not really into politics. So it's, so I don't have a lot of people that are politically active on the left, um, although I am attempting to get a few more of those on. But yeah, you're right. Like, I just, you know, focusing solely on, on politics would have been just a little much for me since I do that in my day job as well. But yeah. you do lead me to my next topic, which, you know, you mentioned you don't consider yourself an activist anymore, but you do work in the conservative space um, mm-hmm. online. And uh, you've you've taken, you had that feedback in college and you put yourself out there. Uh, what do you think sometimes people may misunderstand about conservative women? And also, how do you deal with any pushback you get from people, maybe online or even in person? Sure. Well, you know, I think because I've, it feels like light years, like being involved in politics, like it really does age you and make <laughs> you feel like you've worked in something for an eternity. And it's not that long, but it really does. If you're heavily invested in it, you really do feel like you've worked in it longer than you should have or have done so. But yes, I mean, I think yeah, being a conservative woman should be an empowering thing. And I have friends of different political stripes, like even in the outdoor industry, which leans more conservative. I actually have come across a lot of women who are not political or may lean a little bit to the left, but I try not to talk about politics with them just because I'm like, oh, I get enough of it like elsewhere. I just want to have like a commonality and talking about fishing or hunting or foraging for mushrooms or whatnot. So I kind of leave that out unless someone is like, I know you're conservative too. Can we talk about this stuff? <laughs> sure. Of course. Yes. But- but I've, I've kind of graduated to the point where I don't want to speak simply to the echo chamber or um, if I'm doing political commentary. I want people outside of my uh, our worldview, excuse me, uh, to know what conservatives do or, or how conservatives feel. And that's why I started this District of Conservation Project podcast and have tried to talk to more mainstream media outlets on guns or hunting or fishing or whatever comes to mind, whatever topic they want me to talk about, if it relates to being a daughter of immigrants or talking about business or creative disruption or things of that sort. So I always try to make myself open to opportunities to kind of go into uh, unfriendly territory or unique territory. Yeah. But, but I think being a conservative woman shouldn't penalize or excuse me, shouldn't uh, make you get penalized or, or have um, any punishment associated with it. I think a lot of women don't feel like the Democrat Party represents them, and I certainly don't. 
and especially this new crop of congresswomen, I, I like there there are Democrat women you can talk to and have a heart to heart conversation with. I've encountered many across the years, and even working in the outdoor industry, I, I know some of them may lean a little more left, but they're civil, they're open minded, and they don't rush to judgment about you being a conservative. But I feel like a lot of kind of these younger millennial or millennial type Democrat women are just so antagonistic and they don't want to have a conversation. And, and even the men too, who are a little bit younger, kind of the the influencers that are rising up in the Democrat party are unabashedly intolerant. And it, it's really sad because if you go around DC, I, have, I haven't really encountered this, but I have no doubt people don't talk to one another if they're of different political beliefs, they shy away from talking to people and well you know it's like taboo for like because I know many people that work for the administration and I can't imagine what it's like for them like having to you know out at a happy hour oh what do you do oh conversation (laughs) shut down very quickly depending on who you're talking to and I think that's you know it's really sad just because and I'm sure you you would agree with me here just because it's like don't do we not want good people working for this administration and and so many so many are great. Like I, I just have such respect for so many uh, folks that I know that are doing a great job yes. where they are. Um, uh, I was going to say, you know, with your position working uh, in this outdoor industry, and sometimes you're talking about guns. Have you ever gotten any um, backlash for that yourself? Not recently. That's like, good. I'll, yeah, which is nice. No threats to my life or people trying to find my address or my personal information. I haven't thankfully gotten to the level uh, of that. And I don't think I will. Uh, But Dana Lash, poor thing. She always gets like this crazy type of level of hatred and people trying to find her address. Like I would never advocate for that for any person who's politically opposite. I think that's a horrible tactic. And I think most conservatives don't like and support that type of tactic. Oh yeah. I could never, like, I could not be the person that's in the spotlight like no. that simply because I just, well, first of all, I can't take criticism. But <laughs> secondly, um, I just feel like it would be stressful and scary. Sure. I mean, if I put out stuff, sometimes other blue check marks who don't agree with me or who are diametrically opposed will say like some snide comments and you'll start to see like some replies, but it never gets to the level of like going viral or being placed on a blog. And I'm fine with people criticizing my stuff. Like I don't say that I have the right opinion. I just put out what I think is interesting for people to digest and they can take it or leave it, of course. But uh, I haven't really. Well, and you're not probably saying a lot of really inflammatory stuff either. Like you're probably. A lot of what I've said, not that like anything I said was indefensible in the past, but I used to tweet like what I used to think impulsive. <laughs> and I think we all have been guilty of that. I, I feel like every person, whether they're a conservative or a liberal or a Democrat Republican, we impulsively tweet. And I think when Twitter was first emerging, all of us were like, oh, oh yeah, cool to do. And, and I'm, I've reassessed my strategy. Like I won't put dozens of tweets each day, maybe like few tweets a day. Uh, because yeah. everyone, is, Twitter has like kind of evolved to the platform, especially where everyone tweets the same thing. We have more warriors and more people out there tweeting stuff to get out there and to get noticed. So I don't feel the need to always tweet my thoughts. And also certain things are better left unsaid, especially when dicey situations happen or a tragedy strikes. I think it's best to not say anything, especially with something contentious, uh, just so you don't like alienate any potential work you may receive. You get fired from your job. And sometimes I worry that social media dialogue could devolve into that more where people are just so rabid one way or another and they don't think about things that they put out there or a lot of people kind of post like a cry for help and I worry about some some younger conservatives who tweet like about certain things that should be more so privately handled and I know everyone handles social media usage differently but I think um yeah conservatives do have a rightful place and yeah it's it's just so interesting just to see how politicking has evolved and even to an extent devolved um, across the years. I think there was that, did you see that new study that said that maybe like 10% of Twitter's users account for 80% of the content out there? Did you see that? I did. I remember (laughs) seeing or hearing something about that, which I totally believe. And I'm with you on what you're saying because I did recently do the big Twitter deletion where I, 
you know, I got Twitter in 2008, so God only knows what I was saying back then. And I, I deleted all of my tweets um, in history a few months ago, so I only have the ones since I did that. Now, I know, I'm smart enough to know that if somebody really wanted to find them, I'm sure they're somewhere, but I made it a lot harder. And I, again, I don't like you, you, I don't think I (laughs) said anything indefensible, but I also know that I probably said some pretty ignorant stuff. Uh, so I would rather not have that available for easy picking. Um, okay, Gabby, well, I feel like we could probably talk a lot longer than just this hour for the podcast today, but, uh, we do have a few things we want to chat about before we get to the end of our conversation. So, Um, looking at your life now and all the things that you're doing, your podcast, your video series, your writing, your business, all of that stuff, what is maybe your biggest goal professionally and personally in the next 10 years or so? Professionally, I would like to get better with video making, photography, and Photoshop. I've actually started to get much better with Photoshop, so you'll be very proud of me on that end. So I want to enhance my existing skills and pick up a few new ones, which I've done a little bit in the last year, year and a half, uh, especially taking up more video editing type stuff. I really like getting my hand in photography and I call myself, I guess, a amateur wildlife photographer. So I really love, um, photographing natural landscapes, wildlife photography type, uh, themes. So I want to try to get better with that and kind of have more people of our thinking uh, go into that more so. So that's something I would like to get better with professionally. Personally, I would love to be married uh, sometime in the near future. It's unfortunately very hard to find suitable guys to date. Hard to make that happen. (laughs) But I'm hoping, you know, with timing and if it's, if it's all in, in the right, right scheme and everything and all that, and, and all in God's timing, I guess, uh, that it will work out. Uh, for that. I know it should. I don't want to be alone. I, I want to balance work with married life and eventually having children. I strongly believe that uh, given my upbringing where we have long marriages in my family and I kind of want to obviously find the right person, the right guy to settle down with. Um, I probably have to look elsewhere still. <laughs> well, it's you know of- me, I'm a proponent of online dating. I tried that, didn't have much success. Yeah, with it. well, I understand. I would never. Yeah. yeah, it's like it can be frustrating if it's not working out for you. Yeah. Well, no, um, it works for a lot of people, but but yes, yes. That, those are my goals. Good, good. Well, let's let's do a fun question, which is absolutely. If you could have dinner or drinks with someone famous, a celebrity, maybe who would it be and why? Oh my, that is a hard question. Let me think about it. Have you ever met anyone famous? I've met plenty of well famous people. Oh uh, gosh, but let me think. Oh, that's kind of hard. Could they be living or deceased? Whatever you choose. Okay. Hmm. Well, someone I would like to meet, uh, maybe two people, but probably one person because he's actually sending me his book uh, that's coming out in English for the first time. But I would love to meet Vladimir Bukovsky, who is one of the uh, famous Russian dissidents who lives in England, and he endured a lot of uh, crazy treatment under the Soviet regime. He was put in mental health, or sorry, excuse me, uh, uh, he was he was committed to mental hospitals because the Soviets would do that to deter political opponents from speaking the truth. So they would declare you mentally and clinically insane. And he has a really interesting perspective, and he has a book that uh, was called, or is called, uh, Judgment in Moscow, which is kind of a take on similarly to judgment in Nuremberg. So he makes the argument for uh, the Soviets having their opportunity to get rightfully tried in a similar tribunal like Nuremberg for uh, the Nazi crimes. And so he'd be really interesting to talk to. I would have loved to have met like a Margaret Thatcher or uh, Ronald Reagan, obviously, those are really interesting people. Um, in terms of celebrities, I think it'd be really cool to um, probably like meet with one of the country singers. There's so many that I like, I can't pick and choose which one, but I would love to like with some well-known country singer it would be cool to meet them. I, w- I thought I was going to do an event where Dirk Bentley was going to be at, so I'm told with one client they may have Dirk Bentley at an event mm. in the near future. That'd be kind of cool to meet him. But there are a lot of fascinating people. I have a photo with him. Got to brag. (laughs) (laughs) 
This is before he got really big, though. Um, okay, cool. Well, uh, do you have any books to recommend? Anything good to your rating lately or just that you love in general? Yes. I definitely recommend a few books. Um, I read Hillbilly Elegy last year, which I really loved, and it reminded me a lot of your book. Uh, I, I think you probably you didn't obviously uh, model it entirely, but I noticed a lot of themes that were similar from that. And, and your book was excellent too. I hope people read your book as well. But Hillbilly Elegy Thank was you. really good. I'll recommend obviously your book, Leaving Cloud Nine. I, I try to do that as best as I can. Um, one book that I really like about historical stuff and it's it it's really interesting. It's called The Measure of a Man by Martin Greenfield. And he is a famous tailor who has dressed presidents from Eisenhower to even President Donald Trump when he was a private citizen. And he talks about his journey escaping, um, I believe it was communist Romania, and how he survived, I think, at Auschwitz and Birkenau, and how uh, he came to be this well-known tailor in his life story. And it's really fascinating. Um, that's a book that... Doesn't really get much airtime, but is mm -hmm. really good. I, I definitely recommend it. I'm reading through uh, Amity Shale's Calvin Coolidge mm. uh, autobiography, which is really good. It takes a while to read, but I've, I've really enjoyed reading that and learning more about him and, and kind of his caveats as a president and how he laid the groundwork for kind of modern or 20th century type conservative policy. Because Reagan obviously looked to him for tax cut and economic inspiration. And a lot of people cite him in the D.C. public policy space. And so he's a fascinating guy. So I've been reading that. Um, and, and I know that's a good book to read. And, and there's just so much. I have a whole list on Goodreads. So I have to get through we'll that. Link, we'll link you up on Goodreads. <laughs> uh, and of course, I always like to end the podcast by asking for other podcast recommendations. We obviously know all about yours now, District of yes. Conservation, which we'll link. But do you have any others that you really enjoy that you you subscribe to? Yes, there are a few. Uh, there's Cast and Blast Florida, which is if you're a Floridian and you're interested in learning about kind of the outdoor scene there, uh, there are three co-hosts. One of them being a duck guide who's become a good friend of mine and his wife and their other co-host. And they're really funny people. And they don't just talk about hunting and fishing. They talk about different types of stuff that relate to it but are kind of out there. Um, they're really a cool crew. Uh, Not Your Average Feminist is a good podcast hosted by some great ladies there. Whoop, whoop. I know them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I've, I've enjoyed listening to the reboot of She Thinks. I think that's a really Oh, thank you. Yeah. And there's so much more. Um, occasionally, I listen to Meat Eater, which is a really good uh, podcast for anyone who wants to learn about hunting, eating wild game, uh, foraging, being out in nature. Stephen Rinella is the host, and he's kind of like a hunting evangelist, uh, you could say. And even non-consumers of hunting and fishing like to listen to him. He, he has a lot of interesting thoughts there. Um, I have a friend who's a salmon guide out of the Pacific Northwest. She has a show called Bad Ash Outdoors, and it's a new podcast. It's really cool. She's an awesome lady, Ashley Lewis. Uh, she She's part of the Kinult uh, Indian tribe, so she has a really fascinating background and really sharp, smart girl and someone I'm really proud to call a friend. So she has a really interesting podcast, and I think there are a few others, but I think those are some some ones that I like that I well, routinely listen to. Well, though, I definitely got a, a few new recommendations there, although I definitely listened to a few of those. She thinks for everyone listening, that is the podcast out of Independent Women's Forum where I work, so we're excited about that. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with me and just give us a background on what you do and um, what you're passionate about and maybe a little bit of insight into a woman who is into fishing and hunting and maybe not necessarily um, someone that you hear from every day. I think that's really fascinating and it actually made me want to go fishing. Like it made me want to go sit in a boat and just like enjoy the sunrise. Yeah. In Indiana, believe it or not, you guys have steelhead fishing, which is like, it's like a salmon type fish, uh -huh. big trout. And uh, when your kids are a little older, I think your son may be kind of old enough to go fishing. But when your kids are maybe like four or five, it's it, it would be fun to take them. But you sh there's like plenty of lady angler groups, and I'll I'll connect you with the right people if you, you're interested. Yeah. Well, it's, we yeah. were talking about that just the other day. I was like, oh, daddy, we'll take you fishing, you know, talking to my <laughs> son. And um, I know that he would just, oh, my gosh, he would love that. So, um, so thank you so much. Um, and, yeah, we'll link all up right. all your stuff. And I am excited to share this conversation with everybody. 
I'm so thankful you brought me on worth your time and I hope people have questions and takeaways from this and get interested in learning about conservation and the outdoors and kind of seeing more dimensions to what conservative women do because we all are very different and even compared to our Democrat counterparts, even conservative women are very different. So I hope to present a different take where anyone of any political belief can learn to navigate and develop a love for the great outdoors as I have. So I appreciate the opportunity to come chat. Well, hey guys, if that didn't make you want to go fly fishing, I don't know what will, but it certainly got my ears perked up, especially as we're heading into the summer and my kids are getting older. Well, at least the older one is three and a half now, so maybe we can get him to go fishing sometime soon. Either way, I'm so glad that you joined me today. Please head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review, and let, maybe shoot me a message. Let me know if there's anyone you'd like to hear on the show or maybe an issue or a sport or something that you'd like to hear covered. I'm always up for suggestions and looking for new avenues. So I am so glad that you're here. Thanks again, and I'll see you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.